Welcome to the 2011 Region 2 Convention. My name is Tara. I'm a compulsive overeater and the moderator for this session. Are you having a good time? We'd like you to take advantage of all the other things this convention has to offer to help the Region 2 carry the message. If you liked what you heard and want to take it with you so you can have it year-round, please stop by the recording center tables outside the Houston room. They have CDs and MP3 downloads from all the sessions. If you saw Mariah's stylish outfits during the play last night, they were all from the Rags Churches Boutique. Stop by and see what gems you can find. Next door to the boutique is our silent auction, bid on Dodger tickets, four of them by the way, I was looking at those, uh, a computer printer, airline tickets, and other wonderful prizes. Also, we have magnets and pins with every program saying known to man, don't miss it. Visit our hospitality suite to have a quiet place to talk, find out about local places to visit, and to look at some wares from other inner groups. Finally, we have t-shirts for sale across from the registration desk. Please help us preserve our cherished tradition of anonymity by refraining from taking pictures in this or any other meeting room. Will everyone who cares to please join me in the serenity prayer? To accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The title of this panel is 100 Pounders. This session has a special focus for people who have or had the burden of an extra 100 pounds. However, all are welcome. The format for this session is a reading from our literature, three speakers, and questions from the Ask It basket. As the speakers are sharing, we'll pass around a basket with paper and pencils for you to write any questions you may have. Please specify if you are directing your question to a specific speaker. Please be sure to keep the basket moving, even if you've already passed it. As speakers continue to share, Members may think of questions they do not have when the basket first passed by. I will read a selection from page 19 of For Today. If you eat too much, you're a glutton. If you weigh too much, you won't be popular with boys or girls. Helping, keeping new guilt upon old, I tried to reform myself. I dieted, lost weight. There, now I look terrific. But for how long? And did I like myself any better inside? Of all the remedies I tried, only in a way did I feel accepted for what I was, not for what I might become. Only in a way did I feel my problem was nothing to be ashamed of. Only in a way was I, be able, was I able to lose the weight and keep it off, without guilt, without shame, without self-hate. Please welcome our first speaker, Raj, from Orange County, who will speak for 20 minutes. First thing my friends told me, don't fall. <laughs> Where's the mic? Okay. Okay, hi, my name is Ross, and I am a very grateful compulsive overeater. <clears throat> Can you hear me? Okay. Well, here I am. Here I am facing all of you at the podium. I don't want to cry. Do you have Kleenex? All right. I'm really grateful to be here and to be alive today. I just passed my 24 year of abstinence and recovery in over years anonymous. I came in here on May 26th, 1987, crawling up 12 steps in Daniel Freeman Hospital taking pills for my heart, for the angina, because I had 
my sentence from three doctors were, I have less than six months to live. Because I had liver disease, diabetes, I had a heart attack, and my heart was bad because I was taking angina, a pill for my angina. I couldn't walk, could not walk without stopping to breathe. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't stop eating. I tried everything. Tops, when you call you a pig. Weight Watchers, diet pills, taking those drinks to the point where, here's where I was like. I had Valium and Placerville in one pocket, and the other pocket was M&M's and candy. And my sister was in Torrance, and we lived in L.A., and I had to stop at Inglewood to get refreshments to get the torrents. You know, refreshments like every kind of, of sugar I could get. And meanwhile, my diabetes was so bad, I couldn't feel my fingers and toes. And then my father got very sick. And he had to go, it was 1985, at the end of 1985, he was in Cedar sinai where he died. And how I got there, I took care of the entire family, but I used the sugar. I was up and down the elevators, running to the bakeries, no, no matter what was wrong with me, how sick I was. That's what I did. And then I run home to Lidera Heights, take care of my mother, leave my husband and kids, and run back to my dad. That's what I did all my life, taking care of everyone, but using the food to push down my feelings. I weighed 390 pounds. 390 pounds. No one let me sit on their chairs. It was like the three bears, you know, <laughs> Goldilocks. My sister was Goldilocks. I was a master big giant bear. I hated myself. I wasn't invited places in the family. I couldn't be in my sister's weddings. And I wanted to die. I took two overdoses of sleeping pills. You had to call the ER. I wanted to die. I wanted to die. I had no reason to live. I couldn't stop eating. I tried everything, every diet doctor. I couldn't stop. I really tried to stop. I didn't know there was another way. So after my dad died, um, I was so, I took care of my mom. And then, after that, my mom got very, very ill. And she uh, was in the hospital. She was dying. And um, I was going to go home and take care of her. She had a feeding tube. And then she just passed away. Well, by that time, I had gotten to Ori's Anonymous. I was in for a year and a half. Got anorexic and all that, you know. And I was wearing short, adorable skirts, mini skirts, little leather skirts, little leather vests. At 52 years old, I don't think you knew that, but I, have, I had a good time. <laughs> and I think a lot of people here saw me like that. But that was my teenagers. <laughs> I got... 60 pounds below what I'm at now. And if nobody, if anyone knew Dora Siegel, she was so worried about me because I couldn't sit in a chair without getting bruises. I had been pillowed. Then I started to grow up. 
I start, I did, this, I've done the steps so many times. I put down the steps. That has saved my life. The big book. And the big book, and there's a solution. There is a solution. And what the doctor's opinion said, I've never seen a man so like you that to come out of this and be cured. I am that bottom person. I'm that bottom person that ate stuff out of the garbage after I threw it away that ran out at night to get more food and more food and more food. There's no food that would, that would, there was not enough food in the world that would help me. Once I stopped eating, I realized with the help here and outside help, that it was something so far deep in me that that's what the food was about for me and the drugs and drinking. It was not because I wanted to eat. It was because of what had happened to me. I was raped from 12 to 15, sodomized, all of it. I didn't know. And I found out that not being able to say no doesn't mean you've consented. Because, of course, I felt guilty and all that. So that took five days a week of hard, hard therapy. It felt like I was on a table, an operation, and they left me open, and the blood was just draining out. But you know what? God gave me the courage and the willingness to get through those times. You guys supported me and helped me walk the talk, get through and, and be healed and to help others that that happened to. I can't tell you the miracle. I don't have to weigh almost 400 pounds. The obsession to eat was taken away. I don't mean it's taken away every minute, okay? But I don't go there anymore because the big book says I don't have to do that. I work with others. I do my inventories. Um, I have people to call. You know, we lived in Los Angeles and through big business problems, we lost our house. That's where I started here. And then my sister and brother-in-law, um, got a condominium for us in Laguna Niguel. I didn't want to be in Orange County. Oh, my God. You know, I wanted to be right here where our means were all day long. You know, and all my friends were. But we had to move to Orange County. And then after after starting to eat again a little bit, Natalie, my sponsor then, said, she was, she was really good at saying fuck. She said, fuck it. You are starting to eat, and you're going to be in relapse if you stop. You better ask God to help you. So I started meetings there, and some people that were in the other program told me that nobody goes out at night. I better not do that. But you know what? I did it. And so now we have meetings, and um, I miss you guys in LA because this is where it's at. And you, you are so blessed to have it. But I'm blessed too today. And my husband is in a home. I think it's six years, that this has been the biggest thing for me. My son, who's a therapist, who was in OA before me, doesn't talk to us. So that's been a big thing to me. I've been able to walk through that, grieve, cry, and let go and let God. That's a big thing. At my age, I can do it. God gives me this thing. I can let go and let God. Those big, giant lumps in the road, bumps, mountains, 
I've been able to climb them and go down to the valley where it's peaceful. Another thing comes along, climb it, let go. Climb it, let go. There's no way I could do this without those steps. And my favorite, my praying, that 11 steps, God help me to be a channel of thy peace. Where there's wrong, let me be forgiveness. I have no, I, I don't have any resentments. I pray for my son every day because I still love him no matter what. You know? I pray for anyone that's, you know, that, that, I don't even have a resentment, you know? There's some people I've let out of my life now that were, that were good for me and today I have better boundaries. But the food, I cannot believe, I'm standing here telling you, I just eat half a gallon of ice cream a day. I used to walk, run to the store as soon as my refrigerator was, and there's nothing in my refrigerator right now. Nothing. Because <laughs> I gave all the food away before I left. Um, I can go to my sister's with a table from here to there. It's all sugar stuff. And I just go, I just sit with my, my nieces and nephews. I don't know. It's like, I remember my mother saying, you will never be sin. You will never, never be sin. And what a miracle it is to stand here and be able to talk. See, I never talked at all. Because if I talked, someone pushed me down to the ground and made fun of me. And today I can laugh and play and live and make jokes and laugh at life. Today, I may be 75, you know, but inside of me, there is a very young girl growing up. And I just, I just feel so happy. And in this room today, there's people that have known me from the very beginning and um, that saw me at 400 pounds. And people that used to say to me, I never thought you'd make it. I'm making it. Not, I didn't make it. I'm making it today. It's always making it one day at a time. And, um, I know I'm powerful over food and if, if I go to my life so manageable. And I have ADD really bad and they won't give me any medicine for it. So concentration, I can concentrate here in my house. I really need help. I don't know where I put a paper. And um, I love my life today because my life is here. My neurologist I have a problem in my nerve ending. Yesterday he said to me, I really wanted you to rest a lot and stop going to program so much. He said, no, don't do it. You just do it. You keep going. Keep sponsoring. Keep helping others because that's what's keeping you alive, Rosalind. Now that was a big thing that come. Is I want you to meditate. My heart doctor wants me to meditate. And I've had three pacemakers already. And I have to have another one next year. I put a lot of damage on my body for being obese for all those years. So now 24 years, and I feel great. It's a little, it's a pain like other one people do as I'm getting older. And, um, and one more thing, don't use the word elderly to me, okay? <laughs> because someone did it last week, one of my sponsees. Someone, she wrote her uh, sponsee, I met the nicest Jewish elderly person. And I couldn't say anything, but that word elderly is sick into my head. So I'm having to get rid of it. I'm not elderly. That's a terrible word. 
calling. Call me older. Call me something. Don't say elderly. <laughs> that's my new thing. Um, that's how I met. But, but. Okay. Oh my God. Um, what I can say to all of you and to newcomers is don't give up. Because my first month, I walked out of a Beverly Hills High meeting because I couldn't stand the word God. And here I'm telling you, my life's about God. It's not about the food anymore. Because the food, it's not about the food because I know what I can eat. It's about the spiritual part now. It's about when I sit down to eat, I put the light of God all around the food. When I go and when I pray for my son, I ask God to light him all around him. When I pray for a, a friend that's going through something, I put a light all around her. That is how I do it. And when I've been sick for the last 13 days with asthma and couldn't breathe and couldn't talk, I visualize God's light of healing around me. And I get well that way. It's amazing to me that works. Me who didn't believe in God when I went to these rooms because I was mad at him for what he did to me. What did he do to me? <laughs> he left me taking care of my parents. You know, I've made amends to so many people. So many people. And I was at Light of Candle last week, two weeks ago. I was talking. I, okay, I was talking at Light of Candle. And I looked around the room. There was somebody there that I realized for 21 years ago that I needed to make amends. So afterwards, I went up to him and hugged him, and I said, I'm really sorry for what happened between us 21 years ago. And he said to me, you didn't do it. I did. I've been wanting to make amends to you. And although I felt really better, and so I, can't, I keep nothing in here, I write. My writing is my best tool. And if I'm wanting to overeat, I write a letter from my disease saying, Big, big, big fat Rosalind, I've got you back. I'm going to get you back. And you're, you're gonna, you can't go to a meeting. You can't sit in a chair. I used two chairs when I got here. Um, I'm going to get you back. And then God writes my disease letter. You cannot get her back. I'm all powerful. I love Rod. She needs to go to her meetings. She didn't tell people. I make, I don't drama queen, believe me. And those letters, those letters I made up years ago, oh, I cry when I read them because they're so powerful. I'll go to any length not to touch that food. I was in, I was in hell. I couldn't get out. I was in a black hole and never could get out. I didn't have a life. No, I didn't have a life. I didn't want to live. When I came into Ovaries Anonymous, after that first year, my motto was, I want to live before I die. And all of you opened the gates of heaven for me. And that's where I want to live today. With God, with his stars, with the blue lights of heaven, and the place I am today. With love, happiness, acceptance, unconditional love, and with the beautiful friends I have in my life. What a life I have. It's not what I planned, believe me. 
but it's what I have. And I'm forever grateful for what I do have. It doesn't matter that I don't have. You know, I have, my husband's not with me. I see him all the time. He's sick. And you know what? I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful that I love that man. And before I came here, I had to drop something off with something good in it for him so he'd he remember me while I'm here. I mean, somebody here that knows him really well and was him. He danced with her at my daughter's wedding. He's a good person. I, I, I got married when I was 17. And now, you know, I'm in my 75. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for asking me. And thank you for being here. And please, don't, don't leave. Please don't leave before the miracle. Because the miracle is right here. And we can have it. Because my miracle is here. I use my pacemaker. Here's my pacemaker from the right side. I use my pacemaker to touch it. Every time I feel okay, scared or anything, I use that for God. And here's how I, every day I meditate all, every single day. And I, I write letters and I pray. I pray a lot. And then I, I ask God to help me, show me the way in every way. What can I do for somebody today? That's it. What can I do for someone so I don't stay in my mind, which is not a good place? At being in my mind is not the way to go. That's not a tool. <laughs> in fact, the tool, the tool is to stay out of our minds. And, um, <laughs> you know, with all this stuff in my life, I'm so grateful to be alive and to be here today. And thank you. So, Sally, for taking me. God bless. Please keep the Ask It Basket circulating. Um, help me welcome our second speaker, Michael, from Sacramento, who will speak for 20 minutes. Hi, I'm Michael, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Michael. And I have a strange um, feeling of uh, elation and deep, deep gratitude. Uh, I think that's one of the wonderful things about coming to a, a big OA meeting or a big convention is I get back so much perspective. It's so easy from day-to-day -day life to lose perspective about what's so important and to lose perspective about where I've come from. And... Um, you know, I heard Raj use the word miracle, and it's it's so easy to flip off a word like that. And, and um, but you know, every single uh, little experience I've had of growth really is a is a tiny little miracle. I uh, I uh, got the privilege of celebrating 25 years of abstinence in June of this year. And I was one of those compulsive overeaters who got big very quickly. Um, I was 275 pounds. No, that's a lie. I was actually 270 pounds, but 275 sounds better. <laughs> now, that's a, real, that's a real sick compulsive overeater when being heavier sounds better. But I, 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 I always wanted more. I always wanted more. However much love I got, I wanted more. 
I think it says in the literature, we eat, drink, and grab uh, for more of everything in life, fearing that we shall never have enough. And, I, and that was me. I was always afraid there wasn't going to be enough. And it seems like however much I got, um, uh, it was never satiating me. It talks about a blueprint for life. And I think people are supposed to feel satisfied with their life. And before coming into the program, I was never satisfied. No matter how much I ate, um, I was never satisfied. I, I did get to 270 pounds by the time I was 17. I came into the program when I was 22. Um, and I heard a wonderful definition of a true compulsive overeater once at a meeting. A true compulsive overeater is somebody who eats because they've got to, to get from point A to point B. And when I heard that, I remember when I was growing up, I couldn't get from the bus stop to my room without stopping at the kitchen and eating something. I couldn't get from period one to period two without stopping and eating something. And so literally for the first 17 years of my life, point A to point B, I just kept eating. I used to say, I kept getting older, but I never grew up. I never grew up. When people said, Michael, how did you deal with the death of your father? Well, I didn't. I ate. How did you deal with being gay in high school? I didn't. I ate. I kept wanting to be temporarily distracted from life. And my experience is, if I kept eating, I kept being temporarily distracted. But unfortunately, that turned into 17 years. And I was just 30 pounds overweight once. I, I know I was in the sixth grade, and they weighed us at school. I don't remember why, because I was eating. And um, I was 160. And they circled 160 and put negative 30, and I needed to lose 30 pounds. Didn't 30 pounds, that was it. And then somehow or other, six years later, I was 120 pounds overweight. And I just kept eating. And you know what? It seemed like the natural thing to do. It just seemed natural. I just kept eating. And I kept getting older. But I never grew up. Unfortunately, I did get older. And then I found myself being 18 years old and being 270 pounds and not having any blueprint for life. I heard people talking about eating out of garbage, and that was like, oh. And I thought, you know, I was one of those people that bought something, ate half of it. Well, I'm never going to eat this again. Mm -hmm. Throw it in the trash, tie up the trash, go downstairs, throw it in the dumpster. Well, I don't have to ever do that again. Tick, tick, tick. Now point B has come. Getting, putting a robe on, walking down, getting the broomstick, fishing it out of the dumpster, taking it back upstairs, and then finishing it. I guess that's eating out of the garbage. I just really had no tools for living. But somewhere along the line, I guess I got so hurt and so uncomfortable. Some people, some people I guess, were like, I feel so, I'm never going to be hurt. I'm never going to be whatever. Oh, my God, I feel so this. And I kind of took the opposite. I'll show all you. 
I don't need anybody. I'm going to do it all on my own. I, I'm going to I'm going to lick this thing, and I don't need anybody's help. And so I was one of stay away from me. Don't get close to me. I don't need your help. And of course, anyone could look at me and find that I did need help, but I was so afraid to ask for help. I have learned after 25 years of abstinence and recovery that almost every problem in my life can be solved by asking myself, Michael, what are you afraid of? If I'm resentful at somebody, it's because I'm afraid I've done this. If I'm angry at somebody because I haven't gotten a raise, it's because I'm afraid to ask for it. If I've stolen something and I feel badly about it, it was because I was afraid to ask. Almost everything has been come, I was afraid. I thought I was a fat, angry, miserable person. I just found that I was afraid. And I had no blueprint for life on how to get over that fear. Um, I did eventually find myself in Overeaters Anonymous. And probably one of the most wonderful things for me and one of the most challenging things for me, I heard once that every good OA meeting needs to have two things, a sense of identification and a sense of hope. Because if I identify, oh, I'm like you, yes, but there's no hope, then I'm like, well, but it's hopeless, isn't it? And if I hear hope, oh my God, there's hope, but I don't identify, then I'm like, yeah, but that won't work for me. So I was lucky that at my second OA meeting, I heard those two things, a sense of identification and a sense of hope. Um, so I knew that I wasn't alone. I guess I always knew that there were other overweight people but I never knew there were people who would fish out garbage from the dumpster with a mop. I never knew there were people who would buy a food item and eat half of it that was somebody else's and then go, oh my God, I've eaten half of their food. So now I've got to eat the rest of it. <laughs> now I have to go out and replace it. And God forbid anybody finds out, so I have to eat the other half of what I've replaced <laughs> so that nobody would know, so that nobody would know this deep sense of fear. What if somebody finds out? What if somebody finds out? If you found out who I really was, you wouldn't want to be around me and you'd throw me away. What do you do with rotten meat? You throw it out. So this fear of being Michael has always permeated my life. I can't be who I really want to be because you're not going to like that person. It's taken me a long time to realize if I try to be somebody I'm not so you'll like me, if you end up liking that person I'm not, then you absolutely have affirmed exactly what I thought. You didn't, you didn't like me. You, you liked that other person. So I'm working so hard to confirm exactly what I was afraid of that you're not going to like me. Wouldn't it be easier just to be me? And maybe some people will like me. I heard once 30% of the people are really going to like you, Michael. They're just, they're going to just think you're the cat's ass, you know. 30% of the people are not going to like you. You are just not their cup of tea, you know. 30% of the people aren't going to give a rat's ass one way or another. And the other 10% haven't figured out yet what they like. But here's the challenge. 
If you don't be who you really are, you end up getting the wrong 30%. So I've got to find my 30%. And I thought, 30%? That's not enough. That's definitely not enough. And at the time, my sponsor said, well, Michael, last count, there's about 5 billion people in the world. 30% of that is 1.5 billion. So you've got 1.5 billion people who think that you are the cast ass. But you've got to walk through your fear and be that person or you're going to end up with the wrong people. You're never going to meet those people. So I definitely identified. But then the G-O-D word came out. And I thought, oops, I don't believe that. I don't have the capacity to believe that. That was one of the biggest things. If you're like me and you're like, I don't have the capacity for faith. It's just not in me. My experience is I had put faith in things all my life. I put faith in a new diet that that would work. I put faith in a woman. I put faith in a man. I put faith in money. If I just had enough money. I put faith in a career. I put faith in lots of things. I definitely had the capacity for faith. I just never found anything or power or entity that helped. So that helped me a lot. I did literally really have to find letters to abbreviate for G-O-D because I couldn't even say the word. It just felt chills up my spine. Part of my blueprint for life Part of my blueprint was, okay, let's find a, a phraseology for G-O-D. I was very lucky. I am the recipient of extremely good tutelage. Um, my first sponsor said, all the answers to your problems are contained in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, Michael, one day I will let you down. But the big book and the program of Overeaters Anonymous will never let you down. So if you put your faith in that, don't put your faith in me, Michael. I'll help you along the way and let Mary help you and Janice help you and Steve help you. But they're all fallible people. And being fallible, they will let you down. But the program of Overeaters Anonymous will never let you down. And you know what? 25 years later, that has been my experience. The program of Overeaters Anonymous has never let me down. Every problem I've had every challenge I've had, every opportunity to grow up I've had, um, the program of Overeaters Anonymous has given me the blueprint for life to get to the other side of it. When I came into the program, I was working as an assistant accountant for a gay sex phone ad company. <laughs> I think that's the wrong 30%. <laughs> I'm like, There's, this isn't Michael. This, this can't possibly be Michael. And, you know, long story very short, I moved up to Sacramento about five years ago, and now I'm the artistic head of a professional theater up there, and I'm directing plays and picking plays. And that's... I think that's part of my 30%. The G-O-D, and I don't know why I want to talk about this a little bit, but I was lucky that the literature says we need not consider another's conception of G-O-D. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient. We need not consider another's conception of God. 
Oh, 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 so your conception of God, uh, oh, I'm sorry, don't need to consider it. What's on your menu? Oh, sorry, don't even need to consider your menu. You know, when people argue about what G-O-D is, it would be like arguing what a salad is. I'm sure if we all went to the salad bar and we made a salad, we'd all make one, and I bet you none of the two would look exactly the same. And somebody would say, oh, what are you having for lunch, Tara? She was a salad. <laughs> That's not a salad. <laughs> this is a salad. You know, and to even argue about that, it's ludicrous. But the wonderful thing is I don't need to consider what Tara's salad looks like. I just need to figure out that I get to eat and find out what my salad is supposed to look like. Our own conception, however inadequate, would be sufficient. And my sponsor said, isn't that weird, Michael? That the literature says however insufficient, however inadequate your conception of your higher power is, it's going to be enough. I'm one of those people, again, I'm lucky. It's easy to read what's on the paper or in the literature, but it's a different thing to comprehend it and understand it. You know, when people talk about sex, it talks about, you know, our sex powers are God-given and therefore good. I was like, wait, what? Our sex powers are God-given. But wait, I'm gay and that's terrible and I'm going to hell and all that. But wait, this book says that my sex powers are God-given and therefore good. Neither to be despised or loathed or used selfishly. That's a blueprint for life that the program has given me. All the therapy, all the this, all the whatever, those are all wonderful. But probably the most comfort I got about my sexuality was in that one sentence in the big book of Overeaters uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I'm one of those people, so if you're not in the big book, that's fine. But, you know, when I came in 25 years ago, we didn't have the luxury of a lot of OA literature. So I've had the privilege of being in the program long enough to actually get to read the OA 12 and 12 and some of the other wonderful books. And... Um, you know, we, uh, one of my favorite passages in the OE literature, here we face guilt head on and get rid of it. I was like, well, you mean I don't have to get used to it for the rest of my life? <laughs> I get to get rid of it? Because I was one of these people who, forgive me if you've heard this, I had a little red wagon that all my shit was in. And no matter how fast I ran, no matter how much perfume and cologne I put on, it stayed with me. It was chained to me. And I dragged it around all the time. And it was all the shame and all the things that I felt terrible about. And the program of Overeaters Anonymous, little by little, has taken all the stuff out of the red wagon. And even now, taken the red wagon away. I don't drag it around anymore. And I only have a few minutes, so what am I supposed to talk about? One of the biggest things that I'd like to talk about is the blueprint for life has taught me that I have to, forgive this word, expose myself. And I'm not being funny. I have to let you know who I am. I have to let, because the more I let you know who I am, miraculously, the more I get to learn who my 30% is. I thought if I let you know who I was, you wouldn't want to be with me. And so I need to let people know that I'm a compulsive overeater because there is so much stigma attached to that. I can guarantee you when people say, what did you do this weekend? I will not tell them that I was in a convention down in L.A. 
or I was at a special gathering down in L.A. I will tell them I was at an Overeaters Anonymous convention. You were? Well, Michael, you don't look like you were ever overweight ever. I know. Thank you. That's the program of the Overeaters Anonymous. You know. Because in the literature, if people could see no joy in our lives, they wouldn't want it. You know, so I know that every once in a while I get to be the opportunity to carry the message. And I may be the only big book that somebody ever meets. And being in world service for many years, for all the wonderful PSA announcements we do, for all the wonderful things we do on movie trailers, the number one way that people find out about Overeaters Anonymous is through a friend or a family member. So if I'm not out to those people, how else am I going to be able to let them know about the program? I have to let them know about it because that's the number one way. It's easy to carry the message in an OA meeting. It really is, I think, personally. It's a lot more challenging to carry the OA message out in the world. And the wonderful thing is, is I get the tools, I get the blueprint for life here in OA to learn how to do it out there. Lots of things I learned as the chair of OA, I get to learn as the head of the theater at where I work. Um, my sponsor once said, you know, this whole sponsor thing is really just a trick to get you to learn how to have relationships with other people. And um, I was sharing with Elizabeth uh, earlier, and she said a wonderful thing about, you know, um, some breaking anonymity, or you get a dollar. My sponsor used to say, you miss me from the podium, you get a buck. Um, <laughs> that the program teaches us how to have friendships, that we get to learn how to have friendships. And for a person who I just ate, I kept everybody away, um, that's a really great thing to learn. Is there anything I don't want to talk about that uh, I should? I get more and more days where I feel painfully present. I just feel so present. I'm not walking around with this red wagon, and I'm not afraid of the future. You know, I'm bald now, and I remember my first sponsor would have said, gosh, Michael, you're one of the lucky compulsive overeaters. You actually live long enough to lose your hair. You know, I have stretch marks. You know, I've actually lived long enough to be able to be comfortable enough to expose them. You know, and the more I let you know who I am, the more I get to find out uh, how many people really, really, really like me. And, uh, and I get to uh, sometimes pass that along because I can tell you, when you're free of resentment and you're free of guilt and you're free of fear, uh, it's easy to carry the program of Overeaters Anonymous because I think it just exudes from us. We don't just live the program, we are the program. So thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to be a part of that. Once again, please keep the basket basket circulating and help me to welcome our third speaker, John, from Los Angeles. He'll speak for 20 minutes. Whose glasses? No one? New pair of glasses. I'm John. I'm a compulsive eater. Hi, John. It was funny. I... I uh, I didn't have much of a chance. I've been very busy this week, so I haven't had a chance to think too much about this and feel a little less than in terms of I'm sort of a last-minute fill-in. And I, I certainly I fill the thing of being a 100-pounder, but 
I, I feel pale. I feel like I'm paling in comparison, but there is no real comparison. I, uh, it's also weird for me. I'm, I haven't done one of these kind of things in a long time, and usually when I'm doing it, I'm doing comedy, so I have to work at trying not to be too funny. Uh, but on the other hand, it, you know, it is. I mean, I joked about it at, at our uh, comedy show la uh, couple. When was it? Last year about how you know only in OA is a hundred pounder something that has some esteem to it. You know. It's, it's nothing you can then translate into the outside world. You can't, can't go to clubs and say, hey, you know how fat I used to be? <laughs> it just doesn't work. Um, it was funny. I, I, I'm a Facebook friend with, with a guy who I used to be in program with, and he's sort of not in program right now. And he, and he, he, um, he posted, he's a, he does a lot of things in Vegas, and he's a magician. And, and he said he was doing a, a children's party yesterday. And... The kid who's the main part, you know, it was a birthday party, you know, he was up there with him. The kid just turned and said, you're fat. And he said, just dead silence everywhere, you know. And I remember having that from kids. And I also remember it took a long time to think about the kid was just making an observation. I folded the shame into it after a lifetime of it, you know. Um, and the reason is I grew up as a fat kid. You know, the, the, the guy who was the first man in OA was a guy named A.G. And he used to say, there's no hell on earth like being a fat kid. And uh, I can just tell you, I've been a fat kid and I've been a fat adult. Fat adult is better. <laughs> they make little, like, little snotty comments to you, little asides, maybe talk behind your back. But fat kids get it between the eyes, you know, and brutally. And um, and it really did make a big difference in my life. I... I I, I at one point moved, I did a lot of moving when I was younger because I had an alcoholic mother who liked to try these things called geographic cures. And uh, I ended up in Florida with my two cousins who were like your typical country boys, rail thin and all that. And I was the fat kid that they had to take around because I was the cousin. And um, I remember I got kidded a lot from them even. And then a, a number of years ago when I was doing comedy and I ended up in, in Tallahassee, I, I went to go see my cousin. And there he is, he's about this big, but he's fat, he's happy, he doesn't care, he doesn't have the same impact that being a fat kid was to me. I, I, I'm not to say I won't ever have a relapse, but I won't be happy about it. I won't ever be able to say, oh, well, I guess this is what God wants. Because um, I tried that, and it, and it definitely didn't work. Um, I mean, in all the miserable things, some people talked about, you know, about having to get weighed in front of the class and uh, gym and the president's physical fitness test. I used to do a whole comedy routine on that that I won't go into here. And uh, and then, you know, and, and so I was fat all the way growing up, and, and it wasn't like I liked it, and it wasn't like I didn't. The other thing is I was I was what they call a gifted child. So I I made sure you knew just how smart I was. It was de desperately important to me. Because when you feel like a piece of shit about yourself by the way you look, you're going to grasp onto any little thread of self-esteem you can get. And because I was smart, I wanted to make sure you guys knew it because that's all I had. But, of course, the other thing that did is, like, I, was, I didn't, wasn't estranged enough from my fellows being the fat kid. I was now the, the brainiac fat kid who screwed up the curve for everybody. And... Uh, which we then worked out a balance of power. Okay, you quit beating me up and I'll quit screwing up the curve, you know, so it worked out. Um, I'm going to fast forward really fast. Uh, uh, other than to say, you know, all the way through, through high school and things like that, I, I tried every diet. 
And when I first came into the program, I used to say none of the diets worked, and I realized, no, that's not true. They all worked. They all worked once. Because I'm, I'm the brainiac kid who can follow a syllabus like you wouldn't believe. You come in and you say, here it is. It's the diet. I will follow it. I will do it exactly. My brain will be taken out because I just want what you've promised me. And then the second time around, I'm a compulsive eater. I have a diseased brain. And there's a lady I love who lives, who's down here who always says, you can't fix a broken brain with a broken brain. And, and it was just so true, and I couldn't see it then. I, um, salute. I um, got into high school. I didn't date. I didn't go to the prom, all that stuff. I hung out. And like in, in any high school, if you're one of the weird geeks that nobody likes, you find all the other weird geeks that nobody likes, and you hang out together. And, and, um, and, and it's really funny because I remember, it, you know, uh, I, was at the, I was living in the time of, you know, where the kids were all wearing jeans and they all had hair down to here and, and they were all rebelling. Of course, they all looked exactly alike wearing the jeans and the hair down to here. So I would come to school with a tie and a jacket and, and I was the real rebel. But when I look back now through some time in program, I realized it was because I just knew I couldn't compete. And so I'm going to intellectually, I'm going to jump ahead and be proactive and say, I'm the one who made myself different so that I didn't have to stop and think about how I really did feel in comparison to everybody else. And if I did, I wouldn't like what I, I saw. Um, I ended up uh, finding alcohol. I had sworn I was never going to touch alcohol because the one thing about being a little brainiac kid is you do a lot of reading and you read, gee, if both of your parents are alcoholics, which they are because I'm Irish, it's the law, um, um, Ah, yeah, you have a very good chance of becoming an alcoholic. So I, I didn't try. I'm only through high school. I went to a really party school, and, and everybody's doing And I didn't because I was terrified of that. But I also wanted, you know, hormones are coming up, and you want to meet the opposite sex. And I got, I fell in love with alcohol because it did the one thing which allowed me to talk to the opposite sex without becoming a blithering idiot. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you guys remember Cheers and Cliff Clavin, and he just, you know, couldn't talk to women. Or now the, the Big Bang, same thing. You have to drink before you can talk to women. That was me. Um, but anyway, I ended up zero to 60 with the alcohol, and in seven years I ended up in AA. This is like 30-something years ago. And I only have to talk about that because it, it was my first real experience with a higher power. I got raised in a very dogmatic religion that I didn't agree with most of the stuff that, that they said. This is the way it is, period. Follow it or don't, but, you know. And when I came to my, with my first program, I, I just argued. Because, again, the Brainiac Kid, my brain is on a pedestal, and there's nothing higher than me in my idea of brain. And um, I remember I, I argued with this guy. Uh, it was at an AA clubhouse, and they had the steps and the traditions up on the wall. And I'm like, I can't be part of this religious program. Look, you know. And he's like, it's not religious, it's spiritual. And I went, no, no, see right there, it says God. God, God, God. And I'm pointing all the places that says God. And him, it was a capital H, you know. And um, he said the most brilliant thing he could have ever said to me. He said, okay, leave it out. And it's like one of those, you know those, those scientific things where they put the robot in a loop because they, you know what? Um, he said, right now, your disease is looking for any reason to go out the door. What could be better than to think that there's like some, you know, something is going to, you know, and it was exactly what I needed to hear. Because then it allowed that crack in the door, the little mustard seed. Because, you know, I've heard other people tell newcomers, oh, keep coming, you'll get it. If they just said that to me, that would have sent me out just as fast. Oh, my God, the cult is going to get me, you know. And uh, I remember a friend of mine, when I first got sober, he said, I will not turn into one of those grinning, hand-pumping AA zombies. Um, and 
but the other thing he said, and he became my first sponsor. He said, you know, and I've heard it said many times since, the only thing I don't understand about God is you're not it. And I needed to hear that. I, not that I psychotically thought I was God, but boy, I took a lot of responsibility for things that weren't me. You know, I sponsor people now. If they go out, it's not me. If, if they get absent, I don't get, you know, there, there's a lot of other people out in the world, and I don't have to be any of their higher power. So that's just fine with me. You know, the more I, I, I understand about this program, if, if you reduce the program, and I'll use a cooking term for overeaters, reducing, <laughs> uh, if you reduce the whole program down to three sentences, as far as I'm concerned, it's the serenity prayer. You know, you know have, you accept the things you cannot change, the curse to change the things you can, and then, of course, the wisdom to know the difference. And, uh, an old, old uh, timer in, uh, said to me once, he says, you see the skin right here? There's your difference, right there. Skin in everything you can change. Skin out things you can't. And, and, and I think about it, 99% of that is true. It's all about my reaction to the world and what is going on. And uh, the, I, I, I then, of course, found, you know, you come into one program, you then find out about the others. I found out about OA. All of a sudden, the, the light bulb went off. Of course, this is why I could never lose weight. Of course, this is it. And, and I ended up coming in the program, and, uh, you know, I was 26. I had gotten up to about, uh, about 105, 110 pounds more than I am now. It was mainly because I, I went through a crazy period where I, I was heavy, and then I lost weight when I found alcohol for a very short time. You know, got to normal weight for about 10 seconds, went back up, and then I was eating and drinking, and, and I used to say I was, I was fat, then I was a drunk, then I was a fat drunk. And, um, and then I got sober and then worked my way from there. But... Um, I came in OA and I did very well right from the beginning because I, you know, I was 26, the metabolism of a hummingbird, and 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 I got to kill for that metabolism. By the way, I really would kill for that metabolism today. Um, but I also like to say I I have the blessing of coming of alcoholism. I truly believe to my heart of my heart of hearts, had I not gotten into alcoholism, I would probably be dead now. Because um, I had a I had a sponsee, you know, I I, I just uh, wrote a thing a while back about, you know, about how my friends over in the other program will kid me about OA, and I go, you know, I've buried two sponsees in this program, in OA. I've never buried a sponsee in AA, and I've known a lot more. And if anybody, any of us who've been here for any amount of time, we can count the holes in the line. We can count people, you know. I know there may be some people who are trying this out between Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers, and I'm in the one with the body count, you know. I can name people. I, can, I was telling somebody earlier, somebody who was going to lead a retreat with one of my friends a couple of years ago is dead now because he had a massive relapse and didn't make it. And Jim was like me, this guy I sponsored. He, was, he, he had my exact, you know when you talk about a doppelganger, that, that sort of, he had my quick brain, sarcastic, cynical, funny, this, that, and, and I said, and he was 600 and something pounds. And I said, Jim, the only difference between you and me is I had the blessing of having been an alcoholic. Because the one thing about these other diseases is they slam you face down into the pavement. And if you make it, you go, what am I doing? And to me, it's the difference. The food is not an acute pain a lot of times. It's a chronic pain. It's a chronic pain that we slowly get used to and we slowly keep moving the goalposts and I'll never get to 200 because I'll, you know, and I'll, and Jim was 600. I remember saying to him once, if, if you, if I told you, if I went in a time machine back to college and told you you were going to go from 200 to 600, you'd tell me I was nuts. But two to 250, two, you know, 250 to 275, and that's what happened. And Jim died. And Jim was in a fire. 
and Jim died because he was too big to get out. And when I think about this disease, I thought I thought I would have a heart attack. I thought I would have a stroke. It never dawned on me, you know what, there's times in life you have to be able to move quick. And I would never have been able to do that. And had I not found alcohol, I know I would be one of those people because my brain would have been able to keep making those adjustments and making all the things. Jim did. He, he had accommodated his being 600 pounds. He had the little supermarket things that you use to get things off the shelves, you help him put his pants up. He had his, his, his uh, seat put back in his, his four by four so he could drive. All these things. And I'm like, Jim, you're so smart. And yet it's of no use when it comes to this disease. And, and I, I saw that with him. Um, the other thing that happened to me for the first time in my life, having been affected almost all my life except for that one millisecond when I was I got to a normal weight, is I had this idea what goal weight was going to be. You know, if you said goal weight, it was like one of those things in the movies, goal weight. You know, and the, you know, like the sun coming through the clouds and angels and and. It really, it, I had this crazy idea, you know, that, uh, that I was going to get to a goal weight, I was going to walk down the street, women were going to be throwing themselves at my ankles, and, and so I ended up, the only time in my life, by the way, I've had every iteration of this disease, I've been a compulsive eater, I've been a bulimic, I've been an exercise bulimic, yet for this one small time, I was an anorexic, I became an anorexic because I had a number, and if I get to this number, everything will be okay, it's my goal weight. Well, I got to that number and nothing changed. I was no more self-confident around women. I had no more abilities. I didn't feel any different. And I remember thinking, well, I guess that's not the right number. <laughs> and so I lost another 10 pounds and still nothing better. And still, I mean, people find me coming up going, dude, eat something, please. And, and it was because I didn't like myself at that weight. What number on a scale was going to be the number? Was it going to be this number? And it was, the whole idea, it was an inside job. I couldn't see it. And, and, and I always talk about that because I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get the idea until it happens of what it was like, you know. I mean, I also then went through, you know, my, well, most of my 20s, like Michael said, you know, I wasn't gray when I came. I didn't need these glasses when I came in. But I've lived long enough to be able to, and that's better than some people can say. And I think I went through a period of being, you know, I, I was relatively clueless. And I think it's, you know, I don't say this to be pandering, but I think it's harder for women, especially young women, than it is for young guys. Because I was clueless. I didn't have any sisters. I had no idea of the signals. I still barely can figure that out. Luckily, I don't have to worry. I'm married. I don't need to worry about that anymore. But I have no idea. But unfortunately for women, they don't have that. And you lose weight and things get scary and, and it, new things happen. And, and I really can feel for that, you know. Um, the other thing is I just never got an idea about that. And, and I've got to jump ahead because I went through a massive relapse. I've been in 30 years. It'll be in October. And I had a bad, really bad relapse about 15 years ago. And I could not understand it. And I'll tell you the other thing. If you've been a 100-pounder, the weight comes back on fast. It comes on a lot faster than it goes off. And um, I remember gaining a lot of weight. And... I, I couldn't understand it. I'm talking to somebody who's been in the program for, for 15 years, who knew all the slogans, knew what to say to be the little OA robot with all the, the phrases. And I would say, I'm powerless, I'm powerless, powerless, and I go, eat. <laughs> and I don't know, I'm powerless, powerless, eat. Powerless, powerless, eat. You know, I, I finally got it. It took many years. I go, you know, I'm powerless over a bullet and a gun. And you know how I know? Because I've never taken a gun and put it to my head, and as I'm pulling the trigger, say, I'll start again on Monday. <laughs> you know? Yet, 
I kept doing that over and over. And I remember I, I had all these things. My disease had just, you know, the thing about my disease is it wraps a hold of my, of all the program stuff, too. Well, I'm praying for the willingness. I'm praying for the willingness. I remember a lady at a, at, at a retreat once saying, you know, when it comes to addiction, willingness is highly overrated. If Dr. Bob and Bill had waited until they were willing to get sober, we wouldn't have a program. You know, it was a matter of pain and being willing to, you know, to pull the bottom up to where we are. And, and I, I realized that. The other thing I realized is I would say I was powerless, but I didn't really gut level believe it. Because I'd had minor slips before. And even though I said I was powerless, I would have the slip, and then I would work really hard to get abstinent again. Whether that meant, you know, going to 90 meetings in 90 days, getting a new sponsor, doing writing, eventually I would get abstinent again. And that proved to me I am powerful over the disease. And to this day, I can say that. I am powerful in the micro, in the small picture. What I needed to do is realize in the big picture, I'm not. And as long as food is an option, you know, there's a, back when, we're, you know, some of us were first in use, always hear, I don't eat no matter what, right? And don't eat. I think you have to actually slam the podium. <laughs> don't eat. Uh, and I heard somebody a while back actually say it in a much nicer way. He said, if you're a compulsive eater and you've made food an option, it's always going to be the only option. It's always going to be the path of least resistance. If you've got a choice between having to go through emotional pain or, or eating something that, A, you like the taste of, and, B, at least at some point in your life, work to do less than that pain, it's a no-brainer. It's just food has to stop being an option, and I couldn't see that. And it wasn't until I was around for a while that I did. And then, you know, I had to also then, I'm going to wrap up, I also then had to go through the fun of losing the weight again. And those of us that had to lose a lot of weight, it's, it takes a while, and you have to trust in the process. And I remember I was in another program for a while, and, and the lady said the great line, she said, you take care of the fork, God will take care of the scale. And it was really true, you know, that all I had to do was put one foot in front of the other, eat exactly, you know, all my life, diets were, this is the way I'm going to eat until I get to the number I want, and then, yeah, <laughs> you know, and I realized if I want to be, if I want to be a 190-pound guy, i got to eat what a 190-pound guy eats. It's really simple. This is not rocket science. You know, the laws of physiology don't stop when we come into a program, and... But I needed more, and I needed a higher power to help me because I couldn't do it on my own. And for me, and I'll rev up, I, I believe in the hierarchy of higher powers. I believe in the higher power today, but it isn't just me and God going off into a closet. You know, I always joke, me and God go into a closet, I'll come out becoming convinced God told me chocolate was a vegetable, you know? <laughs> the thing is, I have another couple of other higher powers, like my sponsor. <laughs> so when I come out and take my sponsor, God told me chocolate's a vegetable. Eh, I don't think so, not today. <laughs> And other people, and to talk to other people, and not to think I, I'm the be-all and end-all anymore. And to me, that's what makes the difference for me today. And, uh, and, it's, and to also be around some of these great people uh, and great friends. And um, I thank you for letting me share. We'll now have questions from the Ask It Ask It. And we had a lot of questions, so I kind of tried to put them into categories, so I will sort of generalize a question and then let someone speak on it. But Roz had wanted to answer this one. Um, there's so much prejudice against obese people. How do you educate people as to the fact that it's a disease and not a moral issue? Well, <clears throat> I don't, oh, I better say this nicer. <laughs> I don't care for the judgment that I hear. Now, I'm not saying it's real. Other hotel. 
But there's a lot of judgment going on uh, out where I live at different meetings. I hear things from people that I know about judging people who have gained weight back or judging people because they're still heavy within five years. And I know what it feels like to be at the bottom, to almost die from this disease. And you can't judge another person when you haven't been in their shoes. I don't know if they're sick or what's wrong with them. Maybe they hurt their back. But to judge another person and to make fun of a person, I think is so awful and sad. I remember being on a corner of Westwood Boulevard at... Um, can't remember, we were going to the movies, and a bunch of kids stuck their head out and said, you fat pig, you big fat pig. And I was called those names a lot. So who are any of us to judge another person's size, another person, how they look, when we don't know the inside of what's going in that person? If they're sick, if they have that, whatever. What was where was that question? My own cancer. There's still a lot of prejudice about obese people. No one has the right to do that. It took me to being 51 years old to get here. I I ha I was judging my own family. I was judged. I heard people talking about me in bathrooms. Oh, mommy, that woman is so stuffing. Why is anyone judging people? I educate the people I sponsor. I talk at meetings, and people don't want me to talk about it. I talked to somebody I know for years, and I, I actually told her. I said, I see your eyes roll at me. I see your eyes roll at people who take a candle when they haven't lost all their weight. So... I don't know how I could educate another person except tell them how I feel. <laughs> that some of them don't like me. And I don't care. We have a disease. This is not a moral issue. So I think I'll call President Obama and say this at Senate meeting. <laughs> All I can do is educate, is talk to the people I sponsor, say something at a meeting, see, I have a kangaroos don't go backwards. They go round and round, and they go straight. So I'm a kangaroo. So I've gained weight. I've gone up a little bit and down. I don't start over. Only if I was binging, I really binging for a while would I start over. But I have a very good friend in this room that taught me something. I have friends that teach me. What it is to stay here, how it is to be morally. I never, I'd rather be happy than be right, so I'm not going to fight it, okay? Okay, so the next sort of set in talks about, people are asking about the more specific physical consequences of having been a 100-pounder. Um, how, how do you deal with your body after you lose 100 pounds? How do you deal with the excess skin after you lose 100 plus pounds? Anyone? The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous said that God has supplied this world with many fine doctors. 
do not hesitate to take your medical problems to them. So, you know, I'm not a doctor, I don't know, but I know people who do have excess skin, there are a lot of wonderful medical procedures now to remove them. If that's part of your guilt and your old you and it's stopping you, I actually did. Uh, is this the truth? I guess it is, so maybe it's God's will. Um, I had extra skin and I did actually have a thing to remove the extra skin. And you know what? I'm glad I did. And um, the literature says that I should not hesitate to take that problem to a medical professional. So I hope that's in the spirit of that. Um, as for, again, how do you deal with stretch marks? My first sponsor said they are the medals that you wear with pride for the war that you were able to win with the uh, Battle of the Bulge. And um, so sometimes I look at them and I think that. In fact, most of the time I think that. Because, um, as Roz so eloquently said, you know, uh, you never know until you walk in somebody's shoes. And um, having the perspective that I know of where I come from, I remember when I was dealing with my sexuality and having to be intimate with other people, um, I would actually tell people where I came from. And they'd be like, oh, my God, Michael, you look great, um, you know, compared to where you must have come from. And I'm like okay, he just said I look great. So that's a good thing, again, about, forgive the word, exposing myself, you know, letting people know, you know, and that it is a disease, and this is, of course, the, the battle scars. You know, people who come back from the war and they got their scars, they go, look at the scar, look what I got, you know, and I, and I, I did this and I did that. They wear those with pride. So um, maybe that's a healthy pride to work towards. So I hope that in some way addressed part of the question. Thanks. Um, so the next sort of set of questions, um, the, the majority, uh, or the most, most about this, are sort of more about hope. Um, how do you maintain hope when you're hitting a plateau and you have so much to lose, when you've already lost 100 pounds and you still have 100 to go, um, and when you're starting out old and you have so much to do? Um, how do you handle those things? Well, you know, uh, I, I mentioned that during my relapse, I, I had gained a, a lot quickly. And then, again, by then I was getting older, and it didn't come off very quickly. And I had to remember, um, you know, it's you know, th that if it came off in a day, I'd have been pissed off it wasn't a half a day. <laughs> you know, and that no matter what I was going to have happen, it wasn't going to be fast enough. And it, it would help if I just realized that and, 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 and do that. And for me, the weight is still the symptom of the disease. I mean, it is, it is the byproduct of the disease. You know, just like a fatty liver is a byproduct, you know, in AA, you know, and it takes a while for that to get better. But if, if you just keep working on the overall thing of, of taking care of yourself and getting better that way, you know, when I first came into my first program, uh, the two things that were said to me, one was a positive reinforcement and the other was a negative. One was, if, if you're an addict and, and you, um, uh, well, the other one won't have to do with this, actually. But the, the person said, if, you know, if you're an addict and, you're, and you put down your, your substance, you can do anything with the rest of your life. You can absolutely, the, the slate is open. But if you're an addict that's in, the, in your disease, you're going to really do one thing, and that's think about where the next one's going to come from. 
and and I think of all the that effort and work that went into this and that and this and that and, and what am I going to do about this and this? It, it really helped me, especially when I was coming back from the relapse, to be a little tight and rigid. I'm not as tight and rigid now, but I needed to not think too much about things and to just put one foot in front of the other. And like I said, the line that helped me the most is, you take care of the fork, God will take care of the scale. And it's never going to be as quick as you want. And it'll never, you know, never come off as fast. And, and for me, especially getting older, it, it's, it, it's, it's harder. You know, I don't have the metabolism I had when I was younger where if I gained 10 pounds, it would come off, like, literally. I, I could just cut out for a week and I'd, I'd be back down. And now it's a struggle every pound. So, thanks. Um, this question is to Michael. Do you consider 100-pounders a special breed in OA? In other words, do you sponsor only 100-pounders? If so, why? Um, I try not to put any... Is this the truth? Yeah. I try not to put any limits on anybody who I will sponsor or not sponsor. Most of the people who I end up sponsoring are the people who end up being the most willing. Because it's just been my experience that that has been the key to my success, if we want to use that word in Overeaters Anonymous, is my degree of willingness. I mean, the literature says, if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths, what kind of lengths, Michael? Any lengths. Then you are ready. And my first sponsor said, are you willing to go in any lengths? And I said, I don't know what that means. And he said, well, if I ask you right now to get up on a fire hydrant and pass out flyers about OA, would you do it? And I said, you know what? It wouldn't be pretty, <laughs> but I would do it. Because at that time, I wanted this gift of abstinence so badly that I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. Forgive me, but whenever I hear somebody say I can't get abstinence, it bothers me because my experience was I don't have to get it. I just have to keep it. Right now, unless you've been binging your brains out in the back of the room, you are abstinent right now. It is the first minute of the first day of the first 25 years of your abstinence. So my trick has never been to get it. My trick has been how do I keep it? How do I go from point A to point B without compulsively overeating. So whenever anybody asks me to sponsor them, I say, let's sit down and let's have coffee and let's get to talk about and see if it's a good fit. Because if it'll be a good fit, well, it'll be a very good uh, investment of time. And if it's not going to be a good fit, well, let's find that out soon. And then, you know, we'll at least uh, still be friends and maybe have had an abstinent couple of hours together. I do think, I know I didn't get to almost 300 pounds by the time I was 17 because I was singing too loud in church. I mean, I, I do think there is a lot that's a symptom. So I don't know about a special breed, but I do know for me, my personal experience is, there were a lot of challenges in my life that made me get that big. So I think I can probably be uniquely useful to another 100-pounder uh, uh, but I wouldn't exclusively do that. So I hope that addresses the question. I just want to tag on something Michael said. I know that, especially when I was back east, I used to sponsor a lot of larger people, and I think part of it was I was willing to walk up to them and say hi. I, I cannot tell you how often I've seen really big people come into the program 
and it's like it's contagious. And I remember what it was like to be like that. And I really try now to, to really do radar in a meeting. You know, you tend, especially if you go to the same meetings, you have friends and you, you, you come in, hey, what are you doing, what are you doing? I try and take a minute every once in a while and look around. Is anybody sitting by themselves? You know, go up and say hi. And especially if they're big, because there tends to still these days, even in the place we should have the least of it, to have that sort of, I don't know, thing that somehow they're contagious. Okay, I have four questions left and about 90 seconds in which to answer one of them. So, oh, yeah, none of these can be answered in 90 seconds. Um, will you speak to the physical addiction versus emotional eating? I'll just say there are certain foods that I, to this day, you know, the red light, green light, yellow, uh, red light, yellow light, green light foods, I have them. And I, I always joke, I said, I really know what my red light foods are and I really know what my green light foods are. And 90% of my yellow light foods are red light foods I'm fucking around with. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I have, over the years, my metabolism changed and things that I could eat relatively okay when I was younger are a problem now and vice versa. And I think it's a matter, it's so hard to in this program because you have to be honest with yourself and yet part of your disease is going, no, don't give that up. And, and but this is hard enough. This is hard enough just doing it to, to make it harder by having something that's constantly calling to you to have more. I just don't need that aggravation, you know? So I really try and look at the things that cause me a problem and say, this has got to go. For, as I've heard said in these rooms, sometimes zero is easier than one. And so, anyway. And thank you, John. And I think that's the trick. It's about ultimately admitting I'm powerless over all those things. When it really comes down to it, you know, whatever you want to call it, that has more power than I do. And so I give those things up not from a feeling of, of strength or a feeling of, of disappointment, but as a feeling of humility and, and surrender. I can't do this. I can't, I can't do this to myself anymore. Please help me. You know, and then whatever fears remain, I'm afraid, you know, if this happens, what will happen? Well, that's where walking through the fears goes. But that's been the most helpful, and I think that's what the rigorous honesty of the program is, is admitting, yeah, I have a problem with peanut butter, or whatever it is. And you know what? With all the peanut butter I ate the first 17 years of my life, I got my quota. <laughs> um, please help me thank the speakers for sharing their experience, strength, and hope. It is now time to close this session. Please join me in a moment of silence, followed by I put my hand in yours.